Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem. So turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Conversion, Part 1. I do love conversions and conversion stories. You know, I've had the unique privilege of pastoring in a very pagan city in which I saw conversions every week for so many years. I've seen Muslims come to Christ, people from atheistic backgrounds come to Christ. I've seen every possible person come to Christ, even a few Caucasians. Now, I think you know that the conversion of Saul, or what I will call throughout this sermon, the conversion of Paul, is perhaps the most famous conversion story in history. To this day, the phrase, I have had a Damascus Road experience, is one of those phrases that we hear used of anyone who has had a profound turning from one point of view to another. Well, that's fine and well, but what are we to learn from the conversion of Paul? Is this just a great story? Well, in response, we might say, no, it's the conversion of a man who God had chosen as his instrument to lead the way in planting churches among the Gentiles and who also would give us a detailed theology of how Gentiles and Jews together form one body, one new man. Paul is the author of a large section of our New Testament. His place in God's household is a unique place indeed. Now, this is not just another conversion story. This is the story of the man God used to bring the gospel to the world. I could go on at some length on this matter. However, for our purposes today, I'm going to say the conversion of Paul is also in some sense a template for the conversion of everyone who's ever been converted to Christ. Of course, there are lots of elements in Paul's conversion that are entirely unique to him. I suspect that none of those who are hearing my voice today are going to say, yeah, I was on the road to Damascus and I heard a voice. And I know there are some who try to dramatize their conversions to make them sound newsworthy and exciting so that they can get a hearing. But it's very important for all of us who have experienced new life that comes from trusting in Christ alone for our salvation that we don't try to improve on what God has done in us. Let our stories remain as they are. That being said, I'm still making the point that Saul or Paul's conversion is a prototype of what all true conversions are about. After all, if you know Christ, is it not true that you've been brought from darkness into light? That's to say, if you're converted, there are certain features of that conversion that you not only share with Paul, but that you share with every single person who's ever come to know Christ. How so? Well, let's begin by making this statement. Before your conversion, you, like Paul, were an enemy of God. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now let's get to Paul. What he later wrote in Ephesians 2 was certainly true of his life before Christ. If there ever was an enemy of God, it would surely have been Saul of Tarsus. So let's begin by reading our text, Acts 9, 1 to 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters of the synagogues at Damascus 
so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, Acts 9 connects with the events of Acts 7 and 8. Stephen, the first martyr, has been stoned to death, and Saul approves. From that, a persecution arises, and Paul takes leadership in the persecution of Christians. He wants to eradicate the Jesus movement entirely before it gets a chance to get any larger. And so he's dragging men and women to prison. And that was the drama up to this point. And when we come to Acts 9, we find out that he's not satisfied with that. He approaches the high priest who at that time was, yes, yes, you guessed it. He was still Caiaphas, the very man who had organized the plot to kill Jesus. And he's the same man who had led that frenzied mob that dragged Stephen from the chambers of the Sanhedrin, dragged him outside the city and had him stoned to death. This man was evil personified. And Paul approaches him and asks for letters, allowing him to go to Damascus in Syria, where some of the Christians have fled, and he wants to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem. Now, for those of you who might be wondering how that was even possible, let me explain. Under normal conditions, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, wouldn't have had authority, only they would have had authority in Israel. Once you fled Israel, you were safe from the Sanhedrin. How about there was a proviso? In some cases, the Sanhedrin could exercise authority over internal Jewish matters, even beyond their own borders. That is, they had some authority over synagogues all through the Roman world. Now, we don't know whether Caiaphas procured a special deal with the Roman authorities, but we do know that however he did it, permission was given for Paul to be authorized as an agent of the Sanhedrin with powers to arrest any belonging to the way, which then was what the Christians were called. Now, all the while, he's breathing out threats and murder. But why? See, what motivated Paul is central to our quest to find the details that are true of his conversion and all true conversions. See, we know that Paul wants to destroy the church, and here's what we know about Paul. In Acts 22, years after the events that we're studying today, he's making a defense in Jerusalem for his activities in planting churches among the Gentiles. And here I'm reading Acts 22, verse 3, where he says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Now, Tarsus is a city which is in what was now called the nation of Turkey. It was an imperial Roman city, which meant that everyone born there automatically inherited Roman citizenship. And that explains why during his missionary journeys, Paul constantly made use of his Roman citizenship as a way of advancing the gospel. But for now, notice he's born in Tarsus. He moves with his family to Jerusalem when he's young, and his entire training occurs in Jerusalem. And by the way, it is for that reason that it seems very likely that he would at some time, I think he must have heard Jesus speak, and I, I think it's very likely that he would have seen him crucified, although he makes no mention of any of that in any of his writings. We also know that Paul was trained by the very famous rabbi, still alive in his day, a man named Gamaliel. And it's really interesting because according to Acts 5.33, when the Sanhedrin were, were making plans to kill Peter and John, it was Gamaliel who stepped in and stopped them. He, he urged moderation and caution in the persecution of Christians. So clearly, Paul opposed the more moderate position of his teacher. 
Again, that leads us to a question, why? What was motivating him? Well, I think a part of the answer to that question might be as we go back into what Paul said about his own life. And here, I'm reading what he wrote in Galatians 1.14. He says, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. That's to say, Paul was able to get beyond the teachings of Gamaliel. See, Paul must have been a brilliant student, and he was more than capable of thinking for himself. I know many students that never get beyond their teachers, but but this man got beyond him. He must have thought that his teacher was not vigorous enough in defending Judaism from the followers of Jesus. And so his brilliant mind, you see, was not just brilliant, but he was also given over to evil. And when those two things combine together, bad things happen. So here's what we know about the Judaism of Paul's day. I'm quoting here from Dr. George Eldon Ladd, and and Ladd said, the Jewish doctrine of revelation centered all knowledge of God and his will in the law. The Holy Spirit had departed from Israel with the last of the prophets. No further word from God was needed. Everything was contained in the law. That is, in the law that was written and in, in the oral explanation of the law. So if you will, Paul did not believe it was possible that God would send another prophet or anyone else until the day of the Messiah arrived, and the Messiah would not come until the end of the world and the consummation of all things. And since Jesus did not usher in the end of the world, Paul simply concluded that God had not spoken to him, and therefore Jesus was a false teacher and he must be stopped. I mean, for Paul, it was as simple as that. So when Paul wrote about his life before conversion, that's why in Philippians 3 verse 5, he would call himself, I was, he said, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. That is, the view of the law that he took was Pharisaical. And his view was that the place of the law was central to all religious experience. That took precedence over Jesus. Do you want to hear answers to some of the most requested questions Back to the Bible Canada receives from our listeners? Well, this May, Back to the Bible Canada will be airing a special four-episode video series called Ask Dr. John, responding to the questions on your heart and mind, questions about salvation, the church, finding strength in difficult days, and so much more. And you can take the opportunity to participate by sending your questions to info at backtothebible.ca or just giving us a call at 1-800-663-2425. You can access this upcoming series on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel or online at backtothebible.ca. And to ensure you never miss a video episode from Dr. John, subscribe to Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. For more information, or to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. When Jesus came along claiming to be the Messiah, Paul was alarmed. And when the followers of Jesus claimed he was risen from the dead, Paul knew that was wrong, not on the basis of evidence, but on the basis of his theology. 
And when the followers of Jesus called themselves the followers of the way, that was also a red flag in front of a bull. The idea of the way was an indication that theirs was the way of God. And from his vantage point, all of that was trying to overthrow the law. And when Stephen, before he was stoned, said that all the law-keeping didn't produce holiness in Israel, Paul was done. He needed to defend the Bible, the law, the one true faith. That's how he saw it. Now, notice that Jesus said something about this very phenomenon. And here I'm quoting John 16, verse 2. He said, they will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. Yeah, Saul thought he was offering service to God, and that is Paul. And we do him disservice if we think he felt guilt about what he was doing. He did not. He felt he was doing God's will as he sought to follow after the refugees from Jerusalem and imprison them. He was, as he later describes himself, dead to God, an enemy of God. What made him zealous was the thought, I'm doing God's will. And so armed with the weapon of a letter, he chases after Christian refugees from Jerusalem, leaving them no means of escape. He is the most dangerous man the church has faced up to that point in time. Now, of course, you know, very few of us have a conversion story like that. But Ephesians says that we were all once enemies of God before we came to Christ. We've discovered the unique way in which Paul was an enemy of Christ, but we were all exactly that. So let's move on to the next stage and talk about, you know, conversion as a genuine encounter with Jesus. Now I'm reading Acts 9, 3 to 9. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now it is true that most of us are very familiar with this account, but understand what happens when he sees the light and when he hears the voice. See, first... All true conversion results in a shattering of our previous worldview. That's exactly what happened to Paul. You know, in his worldview, there were no further revelations from God until the end of the age. But the light was so bright and the voice was so loud that he's brought to the ground. And furthermore, the voice is saying, why are you persecuting me? And I have to stop here and bring in a side point. See, according to this text, to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus himself. And that's why, for instance, the church is often called the body of Christ. Paul never forgot that in his later life. He saw himself from conversion on as a man unworthy of Christ who had found mercy. And you see, all true Christians will say exactly the same thing. Later on in 1 Corinthians 3.17, he would write, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. That is to say, you bring damage to God's church, God's going to bring damage to you. To do harm to Christ's church is to try to do harm to Christ himself. You see, Christ expresses absolute unity between himself and his church. Paul understood that later. But for now, he's just confused. Who are you, Lord? He asks. You know, a great many Bible teachers have understood Paul's calling him Lord, meaning that he understands that he's king of kings and Lord of lords. But I don't think he means that here. I think he's doing no more than acknowledging that the one who's speaking has authority and power over him, and yet he doesn't know who he is. 
And then notice what happens next. I'm Jesus. And we need to hear this. Peter said that on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus whom you crucified is Lord and Messiah. And God has demonstrated this by raising him from the dead. I mean, Paul would have heard that and he would have been seething at that time. But now's this voice from heaven. I am Jesus. I am alive. I am Lord. I have authority over all things in heaven and on earth. I have authority over you. I'm sending you to Damascus on my orders, and from there I have more orders. Now, the men who were with Paul saw a light, but not Jesus, and Paul had seen him. And when it's done, he's totally blind. You know, in a way, that's our story, isn't it? God intends for all of those who call Jesus Lord and God to become helplessly dependent on him. Just moments before, Paul had been confident, in charge of his own destiny, forging his path. He was in control of the world, but now, in an instant, he's blind and he's being led by the hand. Jesus was in the process of breaking this arrogant man down. And it's so with all of us. Jesus is determined to make those who become his converts dependent on him. You know, I can't help but read Paul's experience and compare that to a man named Zechariah. You know, Luke 1 says that an angel appeared to him while he was in the temple telling him he's going to have a son, and Zechariah doesn't believe. And then for the next while, Zechariah is mute. He's unable to speak. God demands humility of those whom he calls. And we also notice that Paul is told by Jesus that he is to rise and enter the city, and there he will be told what to do. I mean, how quickly things have changed. Paul was once persecuting Jesus. Now he's under orders from Jesus. Does that sound familiar to you? Later on, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Yeah, Paul would find that out soon. So did you when you came to Christ. So let's look at verse 9 again, shall we? And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So we know he was blind for three days, but what else does he do? Well, we know he's fasting, and one of the purposes of fasting in the Old Testament is to fast in mourning and repentance, and I have no doubt He's weeping for what his life is. What else is he doing? Well, according to verse 11, when Jesus appears to Ananias, he says that he's been praying three days of fasting and praying. What else? Well, according to verse 12, God is showing him another vision of a man named Ananias coming to him and laying his hands on him so that he might see. In short, he's fasting, he's praying, and he's seeing visions. For a man who just previously had thought all of that was impossible, that the law was the sum total of God's revelation, Paul for three days is being devastated and his former worldview is being shattered. I think that all conversions shatter our worldview. I have a very clear memory of a 20-something young Chinese man entering the church where I was pastoring. He had just come from China to Vancouver to attend UBC, University of British Columbia. He was raised as an atheist, and as he walked through the door of the church, he heard the choir and the congregation singing, he knows my name, he knows my every thought. As he would describe it to me later, he said, my world crashed down around me. I suddenly knew there was a God and that he knew me by name, and I just started to weep. And by the time I had finished preaching, he had surrendered his life into the hands of the Jesus who loved him and died for him. That Jesus knew his name. This is the aspect of every conversion, not just of people who come from non-Christian backgrounds. See, it's true of you, even if you were raised in a Christian home. And it's true of, of everyone. But let's keep track of what we've been observing. First, we observe that Paul was an enemy of Christ, that he was dead to the gospel, 
that he felt no compulsion to convert. He felt what he was doing was the right thing. He didn't have an inner sense of his own sin. He was, as he would write later, a child of wrath who felt good about arresting Christians and dragging them off to jail. Second, we said that Paul's encounter with Jesus led him to the complete destruction of his former worldview. You know, today we call that repentance. It means an utter turning from that which once guided us. From the very moment that we are converted, suddenly all of the old rules no longer apply. So let me say, there can be no conversion unless there is a renouncing of our former ways of life. You can't be converted until the scales are pulled off your eyes and you've seen that up to this moment, you've been an enemy of God. And then in that moment, you need to not just add Jesus as another aspect of your life. You need to return from everything you once had and turn to him. Jesus comes as it were, and he burns your former way of life to the ground, leaving it in ashes. That's what Christ came to do to Paul. There was nothing left. In fact, he would later say, all that I did beforehand was nothing but dung. It was worthless until I came to see Jesus as the source of true treasure. Is that your testimony today? If it's not, let me invite you to allow Jesus to burn your old life to the ground and give you a new life that comes from him. Thanks, John. Let me ask you this. There are those of us who have a wonderful testimony of conversion, literally transformed from dark to light. Yet, is the conversion of those who did so early in life or can't share a dramatic story, are they not as miraculous? They are just as miraculous because we need to remember that all of us were born in sin. As David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. We bear the marks of Adamic sin. And were it not for the intervention of the mercy of God, we would have stayed within that sin. You know, for those of us who were converted early, I would simply say to you, have a look around at those who were converted later and let them talk about some of the, the damage of being outside of Christ. And then think of how the Lord, in his mercy, kept you from that, not because of anything that you've done, but simply because of God's kindness to you. And then revel in that, Tell that story, boldly proclaim it. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series Beyond Jerusalem right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We know that making trustworthy Bible teaching available to all Canadians is important to you. It is with that in mind that we created the 1119 Fellowship, a monthly giving program. This fellowship program ensures that the true wisdom found in the Bible will continue to be shared and made available for generations to come. One of our 1119 members wrote to say, I know that I can trust what is taught by Dr. Newfeld. This is why we're monthly supporters of this ministry. I've been so encouraged by the teaching of the Bible. The research that has been done by Dr. John has opened my eyes to the truths of the Bible. Thank you. God bless you. To learn more about the 1119 Fellowship, the benefits of joining, and to become a member, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship 
or call 1-800-663-2425.